Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. your favorite Greta Van Fleet song because mine is definitely over the hills and far away hmm that is a good one I like that I like cashmere that was pretty mm. that's a pretty good bop right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, I don't even know if I can keep going with this I don't uh, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> um I I mean n- not not to be topical on Maine but we're both we're both some some dudes who enjoy mm-hmm. us some some classic rock, but also some contemporary alternative rock. Yeah, uh, for sure. What wh- what's what's like your 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 minute take on mm. Greta Van Fleet? Um. Well, I know they're getting made fun of a lot on the internet, and I think it's hilarious. But I do feel bad a little bit. I I mean that that's that's I, how you feel about anything that you just found out about on the internet is you feel you feel you feel a little bad but also it's kind of funny. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> so that that aside, I I mean I'm just not I appreciate the sentiment and the nostalgic mm-hmm. feeling of mm-hmm. the sound, but I'm not crazy about like 70s rock and roll being kind of carbon copied into our contemporary idea of rock at this right, point. Right, because it means something different at this, that that yeah. sound means something different at this point than, than maybe it meant in the <laughs> moment. Exactly. It, I mean, the, the weird thing about the the... I mean, maybe the interesting thing about it, like maybe this is how you can compare and contrast it, because obviously Mm. they're being very, Greta Van Fleet is being very upfront about being inspired by Led Zeppelin, I think in a way that, maybe even more so in a way than Oasis was wanting (laughs) to channel the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I'm trying to think why, because like when I first heard it, I was kind of like, I was into the novelty of them just because it was just kind of cool to hear someone else sing like Robert Plant. Yeah, for sure. Because Led Zeppelin has, you know, there's, they're not currently putting out music and they only put out music for a period of time. And nobody else really sung like that or, or kind of did what, um, I mean, there were, there were obviously other like blues inspired rock bands, but no, nobody else. You never listen right. to anyone else and think like this could be anybody but Robert Plant. Right. Um, right. That being said, Led Zeppelin themselves were super, super influenced by all this stuff that came before them mm. and were really like trying to repackage blues and rock as something different and new you know taking basically old blues songs and turning them into hard rock 
at a time when that wasn't, you know, that, you know, later in the 70s, you would have. You would you would have your Grand Funk Railroad where it's like, we're going to play locomotion, but we're going to do it hard rock. You're listening to the bone, you know, like, yeah, radio, radio, classic rock DJ. um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. thing. But like that, that, you know, now that I've kind of listened to it a little more, I don't really like listen to their songs. It's not even like the same way that I feel about Leon Bridges in that he takes sort of a generalized decade and will make an album out of a decade, you know? Yeah. And you kind of feel like he's going after a sound, he's going Mm -hmm. after a Mm -hmm. time, but you feel like he is aware that I'm not just doing a throwback thing. I'm trying to account for the things that have happened between Mm -hmm. when this music came out and our sort of rediscovery of it now. Yeah, there's a lot more, I feel like, nuance there and the development of a sound that is very interesting. And obviously, like, music builds on music just like art builds on art. Like, everybody's inspired Mm -hmm. from every thing and other people from their um their past or even their contemporaries and i think the problem i have with like greta van fleet you know is that it's it it is very much just like it feels just like you know a revisit of that era but in a time that it doesn't really make sense to be mm-hmm, hearing mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like it's kind yeah, of like it... i in my weird in my weird comparison it's like i always wonder what would have happened if a time traveler brought like 808s in a DJ set or something to like a Led Zeppelin show and was like, here, play this. What would they have made? Like, would it sound like the chain smokers? Would it be like generic <laughs> pop or like EDM music that people, you know, love? Like, what is it? Was the music for Led Zeppelin specifically about musical creation or was it more like, we're going to make money, we're going to make hits? Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm like getting at? Like, where it's like, yes. it's about the. Energy. I, in 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 defense of Led Zeppelin, though, I will say they had a certain idea of who they were artistically enough that I, okay, yeah, because like okay, take like um when the levee breaks, right? Uh, it would have been so easy to just kind of take a a a moderately well known American folk song like that and sort of basically just give it a basic rock beat and play off of the just sort of that uh, obsession at the times with old American blues music, but just doing it on electric guitars now, because there were plenty of artists doing that. But I mean, you bring up the drum machine and like, you know, sampling and stuff, the drums and the guitar for, um, for the Led Zeppelin version of when the levee breaks are actually slowed down which is why mm. they sound so uh, sort of low and spacey. Interesting. They, Led Zeppelin was doing experimental stuff in the studio. They were playing with tape speeds and mm-hmm. um, methods of recording right, in right. the way that the Beatles were. And it, I mean, in different ways, but I mean, in the sense that the rock bands from that time, you could have someone that's like, we. this is the song, 
uh, these are the chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to play this. We're going to sing it. And this is how you make a hit versus other people that were like, um, I want to challenge myself in the studio. We've got this concept, you know, and that's yeah. as much as we want to make fun of dad rock. That is what is so immortal about. Yes. Those yeah. a lot of those late 60s bands or mm-hmm. I mean, even earlier 60s, if you're looking at the Beach Boys, I mean, the Beach oh, Boys, man, are the, yeah, the total, I... the the total exam, the prime example of pop music that is made with like, honestly, kind of better craft than some of the songs deserve, you know? Pe- oh, Pets, I mean, Pet Sounds is yeah. like, in my opinion, one of the best albums ever made, like just period. <laughs> Both but like, mechanically you, and, and just yes. how it sounds sonically. It's incredible. Exactly. Exactly. It's the sum of its parts. So, you know, you go back in time and you give Brian Wilson uh, some new technology. I actually would be fascinated by that. Yeah. You know, those guys yeah. at the peak of their creativity and powers mm-hmm. and energy. You know, what would they have done with that? Yeah, and and I mean, and even in reverse, it's in, and this is also just, and this is no, that was yeah. not a dig necessarily at Led Zeppelin. I do appreciate their uh-huh. craft, and you know, regardless of I know like the mixed feelings that people have about originality, I do think that time wise, and in the in the case of musical history, they are very important. But even even yeah. in going like what you're saying about like and what I stated too of of bringing technology uh-huh. back, I wonder if it's the same if it's a similar idea of how we view using technology from the past to record things now Mm. in the present. And I know we had our discussion about like film photography and the interest in like in, in physical objects and Mm -hmm, and using mm -hmm. older tech techniques um, in reproduction in reproductible art. But I also wonder about that in music. Like I know both you and I really appreciate the sounds of old guitars and how they Mm -hmm. distinctly will sound different than something newer or something new mm-hmm, and made mm-hmm. recently and and it cuts down to even so many specifics or even like an older microphone or a tape machine or exactly these, these, yeah these you know pieces of material or these materials this this um yeah these tools actually you know these well you tools can go are- you can go back to that brian eno quote about like wh- when you're hearing technology fail you're hearing uh art that's uh, more powerful than the medium can carry it. You know, you're hearing um, tape distortion and compression. All of that stuff becomes desirable by the next generation once it can be avoided. And Brian Eno, yeah. I think, really astutely observes that. It's a great quote to look up. Oh yeah, this is all. This is also. I, I mean, that that's the sound of. Um, I think Holland 1945. Yeah, that fuzz effect is entirely accomplished by the basically like the music kind of being played too loud going through a couple different systems and then hitting the tape and you're hearing you're hearing the tape yeah not being able to accommodate all of that sound and that's how you get the the sound of 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 neutral milk hotel but i mean also we as much as we love those things there's there's a uh, post I've been seeing float around every now and then that I, that I think is pretty funny, you know, making fun of people that are like, you know, why don't we do things like we used to? And it's something to the effect of like, uh, you would never make Blazing Saddles again today. No. The actors would read the script and say, why would you make this? This is Blazing Saddles. It already exists. Yeah, that's 
that's a good point actually on that i that's very interesting i yeah i mean i think there is something though to using things from the past but also mm-hmm. reconciling that there is a time and a place for everything and sometimes going back to make mm-hmm. something is not going to give you the thing you want you know it's the it's is is it's kind of like my whole gripe with photography and this is my own mm-hmm, problem mm-hmm. that I'm just expressing now but like it's like oh I love film photography and I really want to get into it and I really love this idea and it's like you start to do the math of like what it's going to take to learn an entirely different medium versus just functioning in the one that I am already comfortable in mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then can take that to the next level like how can we take digital tech uh digital photography to the next level how can you take digital video to the next level that acknowledges its history rather than just saying like no i'm gonna reject this and i'm gonna go backwards not that that's bad because i still gonna do it anyway mm-hmm. of course <laughs> but i think in terms of thinking about it as a more like 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 i just i as a good example right i just bought this mm-hmm. plug-in by felt instruments called rizzy which is a emulator of an of the old uh, filter that it is, which is a huge studio deck thing from the 50s. It's mm-hmm, Polish by mm-hmm. design. And, you know, it relatively gets the same effect. Obviously, the analog is always going to be better just for the hands-on approach mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if you don't have a couple thousand dollars and the electricity bill to spare, it's pretty dang good. And it, and it functions well yeah. with what you do with that. Mm-hmm, and usually it's mm-hmm. by plugging in other, like, you know, my synthesizers or other things to do it. But I think there's something, like, interesting in, in acknowledging and, and acquiring the sounds of the past and then mixing and merging them with mm-hmm. uh, things from the present. Because now, like, rather than use it with synthesizers, I ended up using, I use it a lot with um, a bowed banjo, not to give out my secrets of sound design. <laughs> but because of the combination, it gives you this almost rude like sound that you just can't achieve without said plugin or with and you know regardless of yeah. the microphone it's just because of how things just harmonize together and i think like not and not to necessarily go on a whole tangent about joe's toolbox of old and new technologies i think mm-hmm. this kind of propels us to maybe our main topic today of nostalgia and its function too both in the past and how mm-hmm. we view it today but even mm-hmm. potentially in a future and 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 what that might entail yeah it's um especially i guess where we're coming from as americans a lot of our nostalgia is not only tied to items but i think a lot of the stuff we're bringing up is marketable stuff you exactly know? yeah the the idea of the idea of Greta Van Fleet, I do not know, exists beyond an emulator of yeah. Led Zeppelin and the and the I guess sound of late sixties, early seventies uh radio right. hits. And you're wondering, well, why bring me back to that? why emulate that if you're not going to kind of do anything with it and not going to transform it? Yes, yeah. And that's maybe the criticism that we're running into a lot where we, we a lot of media has come out. I mean, it, this has always happened. There's always been like someone in Hollywood or some 
a record executive that's like, let's capitalize on this nostalgic thing or this fashion trend or something. But what this this feeling and this sort of self-reflection we've had, I think, in the last decade since, you know, we've had the Internet and we've been mm-hmm. able to compare and contrast all these things we're recognizing the cycle and studying it very closely. Yes. And I guess there we're left with the question of why do we hold on to these things when, you know, we're more aware than ever that the past was not uh, monolithically good for everybody mm-hmm. and that we've come a long way in so many ways. So we all, we want to... We want to revisit the past from some kind of safe place, from our childhood, from some kind of innocence. We want to um, insert, you know, we, t- we talked about this before, but like try to insert a contemporary voice into, or at least a voice that, uh, that goes with our uh, contemporary sensibilities into the past narratives. And... I, I I don't think you really start to understand it until you see something that is super heavy, heavily marketed to a nostalgia, like really dialed in yeah. there. It's like really trying to hit all of these points, but it's not to you. Right. Interesting. You know, look at, I was, I was into the first season of Stranger Things. I don't, I think I fell off in the second season. Season. I I was watching it okay. and then kind of lost interest in it, um. But I remember I was I was actually on a dig of all places, and oh. uh, I think I think northern Montana, kind of close to the Canadian border, and there was this guy just talking about he was he was older than us and just talking about how much he loved Stranger Things, how much he loved all of this stuff that was coming out, all of these movies that were, you know, uh, next on, like, the Marvel DC roster mm. and stuff. And just, he would, and he, you know, wasn't talking about this in, like, a negative. He was like, it is tailor-made for me and my generation. Right. And I haven't been able to sort of shake that, like trying to watch and revisit Stranger Things, because that's all it kind of feels like to me is like, I'm certainly fascinated by the fashion and the music and all this other stuff that's going on there. And, and you know, the story and it's got good actors and stuff. I love Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. But you watch it recognizing like, all right, you've got kind of all of these touchstones. What are you going to do with them? It's the uh yeah. It's the it's the problem I think Ready Player 1 has I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah has has been faced with. It's like why bring up all of these nostalgic relics for any mm-hmm. reason other than to just for someone in the audience to feel like, "Oh, I know what that is." I heard a good point. And maybe mm. maybe I made this. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I did hear. I heard a good point though in regards to like Ready Player One. Of a great like, a great Italian philosopher once said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, that, but it was it was basically saying. I think it was a criticism of the book and the movie, but more the book mm. of mm-hmm. um, how it feels like in a way this is the author saying all of this information, putting all of their childhood 
and and a teen and adult life like fascinations all mm-hmm. as like a catalog and i'm i'm super paraphrasing cuz i honestly don't remember the mm-hmm, specifics mm-hmm. but really the core of this was it was really to show that all, gathering all of this information, having all this knowledge wasn't useless, that this was going somewhere. <laughs> that this, Like for the main character in the book, because I did yeah. read the book and it's not that great, to be honest. Sorry. Mm. Um, that's, it's just because of this reason where you're like, yes, I, I you know, speaking in, from personal experience, I come from somewhere right. that went to Comic-Con a lot and I don't really mm-hmm. have a desire to as much anymore. But like, and I think it's partially because of this realization where you're like, you be, you obsess and you're super interested in in pop culture, TV and 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 anime, whatever you know, all these things that we like love, D and D especially, all these things that are coming back, and it's like you have all this information, but what does it really mean? Like, what's at the essence of it? Why is it important that we know yeah. from D and D three point five edition the specific rule set and on the on the one module that they they the Wizards of the Coast hid somewhere? You know, like. What does it all come down to? And in mm-hmm. I think for Ready Player One, anybody that has, and maybe Stranger Things too, actually, anybody that has those experiences loves it because it's 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 going to your own personal place and passions. If you don't have it or you realize it, what's going on? And showing that those that those things are useful and valid. Yeah, you feel like you're like left out, and it feels like, why do I have a stake in this? Like, why mm-hmm. does this? This doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it's worth remembering. And it's because mm-hmm. for us or anybody who's not invested in that, it isn't worth remembering. You know, like in the movie Ready Player right. One, they had, and I remember my, my cousin was telling me about this, they had to redo a lot of the book because most mainstream audiences wouldn't understand the references in the book, which I agree, by the way, because they're just very niche and small. But then they ended up, I think, ruining even that concept by making mm. things that were so rememberable that it felt hollow. You know what I mean? Right. So I think I think it's like, and this just seems to be the new trend of, of things that come out. And I don't think many of them succeed in this way. Cause I think, I think stranger mm-hmm. things I give benefit of the doubt to, I also just like it that mm-hmm. the, the, the writers and the creators and even the, the um, composer for it knew what they were doing and knew the vibe mm-hmm. they wanted. Like they yeah. knew we're going for this eighties look. We're going to reinvent it. We're going to do that. And it worked. Yeah, it's not and that it's it not good. It's not, trend. it's not that it's not good. It's just, it, it, yeah. you, you rec- yeah. Once you recognize the trendiness of it, and it's over, it becomes, yeah. it, it becomes a little less fun because yeah. there's, there's so much joy. You kind of almost get uh, now if there's honestly, that that's kind of my theory. It's like, like why there's these, why there are sort of like these alternative outlets that do so well now because you're like I don't care if this is derivative I just want to see something that's not connected to <laughs> some larger expanded universe that yeah. I have to see all these other movies to understand you know like yeah cough cough Mr. Mouse <laughs> yeah I don't have anything necessarily against Disney movies here's uh-huh. my thing I don't want all movies to be disney movies yeah that's a very yes is i I feel like that shouldn't be an impossible aspiration of mine at this point but you know yeah that's why at this point i'm kind of even done with uh like i think i'm just done with superhero movies my roommate was watching um the the suicide squad oh i watched it too yeah yeah oh my gosh we gotta talk about that yeah um (laughs) (laughs) and you know it's I I appreciated it wasn't like trying too hard to connect to anything else. Yeah. 
you know, uh, but otherwise I was kind of watching it and I was like, I, I don't know how I feel about this. And maybe, maybe you can enlighten me further, but I, you know, it, it, like even like, you know, the existence of Pete Davidson for like five minutes. It's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I enjoyed it without going too much of a tangent into the film. And I can't really say much cause I don't want to spoil it. Cause it really, mm-hmm. the first part of that movie is really, I think important that you don't know anything going in because i feel like it loses that touch really quick yes but um i think it was fun and honestly Mm -hmm. i just got out of watching some of those marvel uh tv shows that i think are not great for what they could have been uh it's just getting like it's i love the cinematic universes and i hate them you know i and this is why i think i appreciate like a24 films without being too much of a cliched film nerd of like just because of the originality of each story. And obviously they don't make the yeah. films. They're just a production company. I know, don't yeah. tweet at me. But I'm just saying it's like, it's one of these cases of like, I, I think film and TV have this possibility to go into independent things. Mm-hmm. And they should, instead of yeah. always making things connected. Because and here's actually a good reason why I think Suicide Squad was, the Suicide Squad, pardon me, was very successful. Because it just was <laughs> like, you know what? You know these characters. Maybe you don't know some of them. The first movie sucked. Let's make it fun and let's just ignore the connected universe like Justice League, even though the Snyder Cut was much better. Like, let's just forget about that. We're gonna have a set plot bottleneck thing on an episode on a on a one island, one set, that's it. And I think it works for what they were trying to do. Like, you know, movie plot, other things aside, mm-hmm. I think it was a really nice breath of fresh air in the DC universe film wise. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess I didn't feel as many of the winks that like I kind of feel like I they were they were there. I'm 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 still trying to figure out how I feel anymore about like super ironic <laughs> uh Deadpool-esque yeah, a... dialogue. You know, yeah. I'm still I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about that, like hyper self-aware whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it, 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 it was fine. It was playing in the background and I didn't need to pay that close of attention to it. it yeah. It's a, it's a fun, it's an action movie. It's fun. Yeah. It knows what it's doing. Yeah. And that's that. I mean, it's not perfect, yeah. but it's definitely much better than what it's coming from. But I right. think, you know, in that, in that, as, as you can see too, in our, ex, in our exhibit, cause I feel like we never mentioned where we are. We probably should get our bearings on that. That we're surrounded oh, right, yeah. by all types of objects from ruby slippers to Dustin's hat from Stranger Things and even, you know, a um um what else we got here, Zan, actually? Uh I see a bunch of uh Game Boys. Yes. Uh, yeah. See a Nintendo DS. Uh I mean these are things that I remember people around me had. Uh interesting. I, did, yeah. I, I was I was not allowed to have a any uh gaming devices. Well wait, wait, wait. What? Really? Yeah, no, I wasn't allowed to have any. Seriously? Oh. Yeah, it's probably it's probably why I'm such an old fashioned stick in the mud. What? Huh? Well, yeah, now so you gotta like, play I, something. I Just I the... have okay. I have played I've played one Game Boy game. Well, okay. Well, maybe not Game Boy. I'm not that crazy about Game Boy either. I understand. Yeah. That. Well, I I don't really <laughs> have I don't really have any desire to play video games. I mean, I interesting. The the one thing I ever had was. I think we borrowed a friend's Game Boy and I played uh, Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland. Oh my god! Yeah, okay. I know. I never played yeah. it. But I know. I know the game. 
Yeah, and so really that's my only kind of reference for any of that. Any other Whoa. time I've tried to play video games, I've been either just frustrated or bored. <sighs> you never never um, got to experience the the racism and homophobia in the COD lobbies. Maybe maybe it did you some good, to be honest. <laughs> maybe it's... then I would be a libertarian. Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting to me because I'm I'm like recently coming to terms that video games can be a hobby because like oh, I was conditioned yeah. for like my whole life that it's like you play them as a teenager. Like that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. not in a way of like how, you know, you see guys are like, Oh, girls can't play video games. There's no girl gamers. Like not in that way, but more like, okay, like I play games and now I have to go to work or like now I have to pursue my goals yeah. or whatever. And it's like, I'm embracing the fact that mm-hmm. that's a part of my life and what I, like yeah nostalgia or not it's just something i enjoy um and not everybody right. does and well, I, th- you know... I think yeah i think as musicians we're definitely primed to oh, do true. that you know in the idea that you know there's a very very slim chance that we ever go anywhere <laughs> with music right uh maybe you more than me have more of a shot at that no. but uh yeah that this can just be a thing you do because yeah. Because playing music is a normal human behavior that does not have to be commodified. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, but I mean, commodification, as as much as that word gets thrown around all the time, that is kind of what we keep ending up with when we talk about nostalgia for stuff and, you know, whether or not it's the eye dog. (laughs) uh, I I don't even know why we saved (laughs) it why why did it exist but now it's here in the museum and i guess we're it we're under we're under oath to protect it and preserve it so that the future can learn about the mistakes of the past yeah but again like like i just like i the other day i went into a thrift shop and i i'm someone that does not like polos Mm. i have a I grew up going to a school. You had to wear these polyester polos. I mm. absolutely hated them. I went to school in Florida, uh, just sweating all the time. And it oh, like does that no. thing where it like sticks to your skin. Yeah. And also like polos to me took on such a connotation of once I didn't have to wear a polo every day, I just felt like <laughs> it was such a minimal effort guy thing to wear I, yeah agree. you know and i was like i was like you would be wearing a t-shirt right now the only difference is that collar and yeah they were just sh- i i felt very schlubby in a polo uh-huh you know maybe this is before i knew how to dress myself i did not like <laughs> polos and then mm. like a couple of days ago i found a polo for six bucks in a thrift store okay and I am insanely happy with it. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and upon doing a little bit of research, just judging from the tag, since it comes from the British colony of Hong Kong, (laughs) um, I can estimate that that shirt's probably about as old as I am. Whoa, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, but like, I feel like, on the one hand, I like want to defend myself in my own hypocrisy of being so anti-polo for so long. And uh-huh. just say this was the right one, you know. It's fair, like, though. I think to I say didn't that. cave into the pressure of the style right now, which is pseudo eighties. 
it, it's like 80s 90s oversized yeah uh, yeah i i found this thing and we're far too young to have any real association with the 80s and yet yes. we are swept in by the gravity of that i think gen x has largely been recognized as like a generation that that feels like it was slighted in uh -uh. terms of in terms of what its cultural imprint was versus the baby boomers and greatest gen before them yeah and now they're they're getting this brief time in the sun of that of that era of their stuff being cool yeah uh it so but but again it just all sort of falls back into this thing of like mm. someone's just making money off of you recognizing exactly. this thing you know and that's and that's the thing that just kind of feels dirty about it at the end of the day and less yes. fun you know as and i i'm being hypercritical and i'm being an no. asshole right now um because I, I also fall for this stuff sometimes i mean i play a fender telecaster through a tube amp <laughs> you know i <laughs> fair enough i i am of the belief that the perfect guitar was made in 19 uh 1950 right, uh, right. mass produced in 1952 and uh all guitars afterwards have just been slight modifications <laughs> off of leo fender's perfect design Hi there, my name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. Right, yeah. I um I don't I don't know if you're being that harsh though. I mean I I maybe, maybe, but I, I think like emotions and feelings aside, if we look at this objectively, it's kind of like you know, it is kind of scary in that way how much these things, these our own emotions basically are being sold back to us through things. Yes. Yes. And that's my gripe with nostalgia in general, and it's why it should be a happy thing. And in, in general, even the history of it, you know, started as something like in was regarded as like a mental illness and depression, and then moved into this happy, pleasant, mm -hmm. mo you know, happy, pleasant um, feeling. Like even with Marcel Proust and his Madeleine cookie of of dipping it in the tea and and tasting it, and then you know re-remembering his childhood and the happy times right. of being young mm -hmm. and, and with his family and other things, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, and his work, of course, being, like, integral to the idea of memory and nostalgia in general that we yeah. source out, um, mm -hmm. which we have here in our archive, too. Along with this DVD of The Cat in the Hat. I mean, it's a clear pairing. It's a convergence, of course, of, of, yes. of media. Uh, mm -hmm. But But really, like, this brings me to my main question and really what this mm -hmm. exhibit mm -hmm. is tailored around and it's kind of in it's really in wondering what is the function of nostalgia past the object past hmm. things that we associate with it you know when you do not have polos when you don't have fender telecasters 
and uh, D&D or, or anime or any comic book. 80s inspired sneakers. Like, when you don't have these artworks or objects and artifacts that are grounded in, in a society that has put its roots down, mm-hmm. what does that function become? Does it exist or does it not? I wonder, this, this is maybe more of a semantic question, but maybe it also is a broader question. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. spend, maybe spend enough time reading about this in particular. But moving past sort of, because the, the connotation of nostalgia always is something fairly shallow, I think. Yeah. Um, that you're just nostalgic. Things weren't better back then. You were just young and you didn't know what was going on around you. Um, right. And to some extent, I, I think I'm in that camp that things were not better. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I mean, you and I, you and I were born in a time period of that still had plenty of genocides and, yep. uh, and, and war and struggle um for a lot of people just maybe not exactly where we were living right um but the i'm wondering aloud where the line is between uh nostalgia which feels more personal and romanticism uh, in, in, a, in a broader sense because when you say well, what are we nostalgic for past the object? I think the object requires some sort of proximity. Like, you are remembering this thing that represents an idea of your past, like something that you've lost. And that feeling of lost is all, of loss is all across human history from... Yeah. Uh, I mean, look at any culture that has a diaspora. Mm. You know, if you're if you're Jewish, then you're probably familiar with the phrase "next year in Jerusalem" uh, as as part of uh, uh, Passover Seder. And the thing the thing to remember about contemporary, or I, I guess not, not even contemporary, just r- rabbinic Judaism. You know, post. Uh, uh, for basically the way Judaism has been defined for the last 2000 years is a is a culture thrown out of its homeland that has no home that has you know gone and been successful elsewhere but has always yearned for some kind of um national belonging and right. really hasn't even found that in the reestablishment of Israel as a state yeah and that i mean really for the since since israel's only really existed as as a modern country since post-world war ii for almost two millennia that was a a tremendous amount of of yearning for a past the idea that if we could just have this one thing we could return and we could fulfill this this mm. destiny and we could be happy right and this this is you know getting from you know something that i and i'm sure there's other examples across other cultures of this but this is just the one i i know a little better that's that is so integral to it because it is so much more of an idea than it is any kind of attainable goal or even 
a past that those people necessarily connected with. Because remember, the, the Hebrew as a language was exclusively a religious language for so long. Um, yeah. Whether, whether you were Sephardic or Ashkenazi or Yemenite, like a, a Ethiopian, like you did not speak Hebrew in conversation to each other. You spoke some modified language of wherever you were living. You right. spoke Yiddish, you know, it, you, you didn't speak Hebrew to each other in, in casual conversation. Hebrew was, was specifically a religious language. It was like Latin is, for Catholicism, right, in right. some ways, um, it was it was a uh, you know uh, it was somewhat of a dead language, and the idea of accomplishing that did not necessarily fulfill everything that it did not necessarily answer all of the questions, but it was there as like sort of this irrational but very powerful yearning for mm. some kind of uh some kind of time before yourself before you were aware right right yeah yeah it's, i i think i think that even really plays into any narrative of a loss of innocence and yeah I feel like, true i feel like we've had that idea for enough of a time in humanity that maybe post objects that's where that energy goes it it goes mm. into a a culture of yearning for some kind of more innocent past, which I feel like as a movement was somewhat defined by romanticism, but romanticism doesn't feel like it does the same thing as nostalgic. I'm no. I'm curious. I've been talking for a while. I'm curious <laughs> what your thoughts are on this. No, it's super interesting what you're saying though. And I think it, it, that's why I, I'm, I'm listening in the sense I'm barely taking yes. this in because it's a lot and it's really fascinating what you're saying. And, you know, I think for me and, and how I come at this with my own lens, like having, you know, working with nostalgia, working under, working through that idea of romanticism and pushing past it, right? But still being fascinated with the idea of looking at history or mm -hmm. looking at the world, mm -hmm. maybe yeah. not at the romantic viewpoint, but maybe a, a sublime one or, or, you know, how, you know, just being yeah. interested in the idea of even being alive personally. But mm -hmm. I think... I think that romanticism does get into this mix. Mm -hmm. Maybe you see it as like a, you know, people romanticize the eighties or nineties. They definitely romanticize the fifties. You know, we romanticize even, you know, historical periods like Rome, yeah. for instance, definitely. And I mean, that's just yeah. that's partially where it comes from. And other, of these other events, the, the Renaissance even too, like, I think there is that filter that goes over top for sure yeah i think nostalgia where it differs in this way mm -hmm. like i think that it's more about like like the metaphor or just the idea of it for me is always like when you like when you look at family photos mm -hmm. and you immediately and they're not your family like let's say you go to we're going to a thrift stop let's just walk to the corner actually over here i'm gonna show you this photo right here and okay it's of a family you know that's just your general nuclear family it's in that very it's in it's in colorized film, but definitely like Technicolor, right? Like really faded. There's mm -hmm. it's grimy, it's dusty, you know. But it's it it says like 1958 on the back. If we flip it, this is like something you might find in a thrift store. It's something you might find in in your parents' house when you go back and are clearing stuff out. You know, these are just these are artifacts that we mm -hmm. have. I feel, uh, and I don't know maybe if you agree or not, but like that have become such a familiar material 
for family, mm-hmm. for memory, for things of the past that we might mm-hmm. long for. I think that plays into the kind of interest that people now have with like really old faded film photography or finding mm-hmm. like home mm-hmm. movies. I think there's an interest in why we like, you know, we like yearn for a past we never even participated in. It's why maybe like yeah. Gen Z is so interested in like fashion from the 2000s or even the 90s when they weren't even, some of them weren't even alive yet, you know, like are are Mm -hmm. very, very young. I am trying to warn these young people about Crocs and no one is believing me. It's going to come back. It just is. And I don't know how to feel about it. Joe, inevitably, and I'm not ready for Croc Martens. Croc (laughs) Martens. Oh my God. That's... That's gonna happen, and I'm terrified about the Bir- it. The Birkin Crocs are already here. Oh God, they're here and they're ready to stay. But even Doc mm. Martens are something nostalgic, right? Oh, like yeah. even their own history of where they were from and what they were created for is very fascinating. Like, and now it's become something culturally completely different. Maybe in a similar alternative mindset, but still mm-hmm. just like different fashion trend. But mm-hmm. like, even for me, like. That's where I find the difference. I mean, I'm not an expert on Mm -hmm. nostalgia. I don't know even more of the psychological things behind it, but I do know there is that connection to the personal. And I think Mm -hmm. romanticism is the connection to like wanting to be a part of a moment or something bigger than it actually is, right? Like kind of casting this massive gaze on the world and being like, you know this is the best, or this is how it was. It's it's the all of landscape Mm -hmm. painting, Mm -hmm. you know, the the American landscape painting in the the, uh, late, what? 19th century you know like you know this this idea and obviously in a a Mm -hmm. western art canon just to be more clear about it in general but i guess like part of my question with it too is it's like when we end you know in in a couple thousand years in the future and let's say that things reset or maybe they don't or just honestly no not even i'm Mm -hmm. not even going to use those words because i don't like the narratives they portray let's just say develop in a way mm-hmm. that we return to more agrarian society or we return to less stabilized or less, mm-hmm. um, you know, structural homes like settled in and right. more, we're back to migration. Maybe it's, it's more mm-hmm. or less, I don't know. Like just, it, maybe it's post-apocalyptic, maybe it's not, I don't know. But like to this idea where we're basic, basically in a similar way of prehistory where there might be leftover remnants of civilizations, but to, to, they might just be looked at like the pyramids are or like even the Sphinx, something so old that you really don't know the full history of. Mm-hmm, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just kind of, and this is totally a thought experiment. This is totally just for us mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. and you know, us audience included to think about like, if you don't have an attachment to things, does nostalgia still function? Because I know mm. a lot of that is connected to like souvenirs. Like we acquire souvenirs to remember something. So you remember mm-hmm. through an object, which, you know, for me, even having, you know, my mother being an immigrant has lots of souvenirs from her past. And a lot of them too, like I spent a lot of time going through and I'm remembering something I didn't even experience, but I have them and I like them. And I have souvenirs that even my dad acquired from his travels. Like, I think it's just like, for me, you living through objects. So if we're not in a position where we're living through objects anymore, maybe you're migrating from place to place, nomadic culture, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this way where there's not even something around you. Cause this would have to, this is obviously really broad. So like you would have to kind of be in a, in a condition where there, that doesn't even exist like cross culturally, globally, right. That, that idea doesn't right. exist anymore of acquiring things. So does it still function the same way? Will mm. it still function mm. the same way? Or have we be have we crossed a threshold perhaps where 
nostalgia is just going to constantly grow and develop and change the way that we remember the past and how we even remember our own memories. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's an enormous question. I'm yeah, there's no, I don't think there's an answer, by, by the way, either, I, so I don't expect one. It's more yeah. just, I think, to, to marinate on, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it does, it does make me think of a few things in particular, um, you know, as, you know, like, let's say we even, you know, as, as we sort of travel for, through our collection and yeah. let's say even our collection starts to crumble around us, mm-hmm. uh, and as it seems to be doing oh yeah that's yeah watch great. out watch out right. well, watch let's out. keep going oh, it's the, sure it'll troll, get better the the troll dolls all fell down oh, oh god okay all right um oh god oh god it's all the beanie babies oh, oh my uh, beanie oh, oh my beanie spiders <laughs> um like let's say we we go all the way forward to like 2121 and oh wow okay yeah yeah you know we're we're just we're zip zapping into the future. We've uh celebrated uh twenty one twelve. It was the year of rush. Um but now <laughs> right. we've forgotten now we've forgotten all of that. But <laughs> um we if if we want to think about how people did it in a time where all of that stuff was just nostalgia was just, you know, if we move on from a world when nostalgia is just something that advertising agencies, you know, play right. off of, I kind of want to look at the idea of mythology as something oh, nostalgic. Because I think mythology was always predicated on some idea of a heroic past mm. um, of any peoples. Even if... Uh, like you you brought up the term sublime yeah and sublime is a is a big concept in romanticism crucially for the the time period that we think of as the romantic era because you had at least people in a certain social strata who were very comfortable who had leisure time who could sit around and imagine what things were like before you know read books about medieval times and the pre-renaissance and you know sort of look back on this less civilized or what they saw as a less civilized world and there was a thrill to it that was Mm. sort of the the nature of the sublime was that you know you're looking at a painting of you know, a a person getting attacked by a shark. You know, that's right. That's what quite literally the pa- the romantic painting Watson and the shark. But you are you're getting a thrill out of seeing someone grapple with a a threat to their life from a place of comfort, from a place of relative stability. Interesting. And I think if we think about the sublime and think about romanticism in terms like that, that despite whatever you're going through, when you're in a place of comfort, you kind of almost want to imagine these sort of grand, uh, these, uh, these grand kind of magical narratives around the struggle, the struggle to exist. And, you know, even if you look at, biblical texts if you look at the creation story of adam and eve as 
you know, maybe more of a tale of the agricultural revolution, Mm. you know, the Neolithic farming practices being implemented and humans are now no longer uh, living in the the day-to-day struggle of nature. Right. Like, all all of these, like the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, all of these things are some kind of uh some kind of vehicle to harken back to remember when you know remember those those hmm. great days when the world was when the world was less complicated but more violent and right, right. there was there was some sort of uh victory of morality or victory of just uh destiny that led us to something that we enjoy now. So the hmm. the fact that those texts are thousands of years old and uh, make reference to kind of those ideas, I would be in the camp that would say we would still have something resembling n- nostalgia and romanticism for... Uh, for, for for the past even if we only really had a vague recollection of it because clearly we forgot <laughs> what exactly the neolithic revolution was if all we had was the adam and eve story but we kind of now look back at it with contemporary archaeology and scholarship and we can kind of reverse engineer it but you know we went a few centuries there of people taking that story very literally i I think you just gave me a really good book idea. So this is insanely fascinating <laughs> to me as it as a, both an allegorical story, which I mean, I, I knew, but I never thought of in that way of like for the Neolithic revolution or this, this mm-hmm. idea of, of, of nostalgia being a, a functioning perhaps through mythology, through these storytellings, through something like, like it just sounds now, or it just sounds like inherently that we are always longing for the past in this way or a return to, nature or a return to how things used to be but then at the same time forgetting how things used to be right because survival yeah. inherently is violent and mm-hmm. stressful and like i think we forget that a lot mm-hmm. and not to say that it's good or bad i just think it's interesting on like mm-hmm. maybe we perhaps take for granted things but then at the same time there's yeah. this um like this is a question that i'm forming in my own research mm-hmm. in my own questioning of everything of like yeah. is there perhaps some sort of is is there perhaps the sublime within even just everyday activities or is it Mm. possible that you know kind of like how um um michel de the the philosopher puts it in his his theory of everyday things um you know that basically how even just the acts of like cooking and cleaning and and just general Mm -hmm. everyday Mm -hmm. activities are actually very important and not only um, mentally and keeping ourselves mm-hmm. sane and having positive activities, right, which yeah. is another philosophical element, but even mm-hmm. in the idea of like, of, of, um, of pursuing some sort of, um, I don't know, I guess way of maintaining life. I'm kind of losing my train of thought as I no, go, no, no. but it's, it's kind of like this thing, this question of like, this, do things have to be as grand as they seem? Like, do we have mm-hmm. to make them out to be the heroic story? The, the big epic tale of mm-hmm. the adventurer and the violence and the, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just this general idea of like a loss of something like, can that mm-hmm. be refound in, 
in something that's just so ordinary that it often gets mm-hmm. mistaken as mundane. And I don't want to conflate mm. our conversation either with my own questions on these, but I think right. in in connecting it back to like what you're saying, even with the the Garden of Eden and this idea of you know humanity adapting to this new ways and even like the agricultural revolution like i guess you know because like before that what is life like and how do these things function Mm -hmm. and maybe it is just this innate human development kind of like the the uncanny valley right like what our right what we're doubly named after i I think it's just this interesting phenomenon that that is Mm -hmm. it exists for a reason and maybe psychologically and scientifically it's something way more you know, complex and maybe less emotionally right. invested than we think. There, yeah, there's, there's, there's certain languages. I know it's, um, I, I, I think in sort of the tribes of the Pacific Northwest, at least here in the United States, you know, you have different, it, like, look at a culture like that, that, you know, was without written language. Right. Um, and they, their language had a different past tenses. Um, hmm. You know, sort of a, a recent past, a far back past, but also crucially a mythic past. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So by changing tense on a verb, suddenly you are making a larger reference to a, a culture and a mythology uh the the idea that you can even do a verb for that amount of time <laughs> that a yeah that 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 an action persists like that i think there's I, I guess what i'm getting at is i feel like there's plenty of precedent across the world and across cultures for there to to be something resembling a nostalgia because people will yeah. always you know uh reminisce on the ideas of when they were when they were younger and whatever they perceived were the, their glory days that's right we have you know, we have Greek texts of, you know, people talking about how their students have it too easy because they, you know, invented a new writing implement, you know? Oh my god, I mean, it's the calculator all over again. Yeah, you know, the... <laughs> I love how I love how so many of our earliest texts we have as humans are just us complaining about things. It's amazing. It, it's yeah. just, it's, it's humanizing, this, literally. This copper ore is of unacceptable quality and then you're immortal um it's i i think there's plenty of precedent for mm-hmm. this kind of idea if you know the the oceans rise uh the rivers retake manhattan and we're just sort of living in the shadow of all of it yeah you know and we we've moved past you know maybe the the marketable attachment to objects and stuff i I think we would have something resembling it. I don't think mm. it would be the same. Of course. Not. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, because I, I think also nostalgia just being, you know, sort of a a more recent word. It's uh, it's not that old of a word, right? Because it is Greek in origin. Yeah. It is Greek in origin, but it is like, it's like octopus, <laughs> yeah. where octopus is technically greek but it's latinized and it's also kind of just made in the last couple hundred years because Mm -hmm. you you want to have official words for science be uh uh archaic greek yeah i know i know it's from uh nosto algos like the words Mm -hmm. nosto and algos for homecoming and then pain 
for algos that yes. is um and it is it is derived from the greek and then combined and, and it was something where it was it was really coined in the um i'm forgetting exactly when but it, it's it's like the last 200 years it isn't within that like 1800s 1900s because of i think it was swiss soldiers were like homesick yeah yeah homesick from battle and just like having these really strong like panic attacks and other things happening in depressive moments and episodes uh but and, and i know it was like upon hearing like uh cowbells in the distance and other things it was really like you know this extreme thing i was like what's happening and then you know it, it kind of got watered down into what it is today and more, maybe not watered down that's actually the wrong word understood more more like uh, understood yeah. for what it is because it became less dramatic and something intense and then it started to written more about like how it could be helpful in therapy and good and again like yeah. marcel proust and all these other references that are used a lot i was also just watching the sopranos again because that's my that's my course of and that's my destiny right now <laughs> and that that got brought up and i i you know it was like wow that's weirdly good timing but um, maybe we shouldn't push <laughs> down all of our feelings really deep yeah 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 i mean for me my my whole thing of that is like if i hear if I hear someone like uh, beating eggs with a fork or scrambled eggs, uh-huh. that takes me back to childhood smelling really? coffee or something, even though I don't even drink coffee. That's like, interesting. Yeah, like for me, that just sounds like waking up in the morning and like my dad's making breakfast. Like hmm. that's just like there are like little triggers of that for yeah. me. And that's when I think like, that is that is a very personal nostalgia and that is but that is also a much more powerful one yes. than SpongeBob merch. Well that's the thing. It's it's nostalgia is personalized. It's not supposed yeah. to be something that's always broadened. I mean that's not that that's a problem because we all are individuals and we all have our own individual, you know, thoughts that sometimes are well, most times are actually very similar to one another, but then at the same time it's like my nostalgia is different than yours, just down to the specifics. But we both might have nostalgia when it comes to, I don't know, 90s movies or The Land Before Time or something like that. We could maybe <laughs> refer back to our childhoods that are re- because we're just in similar age groups like that would just be referenced. Like there is this this like um, bigger nostalgia, like when they redid Aladdin or they redo Beauty and the Beast. And it's mm. like, we all, you know, those who watch the movie are going to be connected to it emotionally because we all watched it in the same relative age groupings between you know, maybe like, I don't know, three to 10, let's say, just as a, as an age range. So I think that is also really interesting that it is very personal because I think that's just a more psychological thing too of like, no matter when, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if you attain these memories, this is a way of triggering that and then re-remembering it and strengthening the bond of it. Because ultimately I think that's what's happening where uh and this is totally you know i'm not an expert i'm not a scientist so take my don't take my word for it but (laughs) when i think about memory it's because it's so organic and it changes and we don't remember things like a tape we remember things fluidly and we alter them based on our emotional states as we remember them so you know i it's like i might remember having this 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 uh tour at the ucm tomorrow and it's probably relatively the same but that i can remember a year from now and it's going to be completely different based on how Mm -hmm. i keep remembering it or how i remember um you know Mm. my memories as a kid playing a video game for instance and it's going to like let's say just the first call of duty i ever play when i have a playstation 2 and i have no idea what's going on and i remember that a very different way sitting in front of a very specific tv set kind of having the surroundings 
And then it, it often, as you keep remembering it, maybe you have a feeling of joy or maybe then that that day you might be kind of upset. So you remember it to make yourself feel a little bit better in my case or something. It's just going to constantly change that memory and maybe even heighten it to a point that's not even achievable anymore. Like if we had a physical time machine, if that was even possible and could go back and I could revisit my own memories as they were, which I mean, I guess we do. We have a video cameras right like if you have something caught on <laughs> on home on home video it's it's like i i actually um when i was working on my on my project that never saw our sad trailers uh this is like a year ago you know there was this there was this kind of aha moment and why i think i'm so interested in nostalgia too was like i have a very specific memory of when i was very young in sardinia for an, a a huge festival that they had in the summer and they had these massive like bowls which actually looked like Auroxes, by the way, funny enough. That's how I would <laughs> describe it, because they were huge. I'm also a tiny person at the time. I'm like three. So I remember these as these huge, monstrous, beautiful cow things with all kinds of ornamentation and decoration. And I mean, that's also just in the specific area that my mom is from. The, the ornamentation is really heavy and the color palette's very, it's like muted, but with pops of reds. So, and just in general, I remember the sounds of bells and the sounds of, you know, the food and people talking and speaking the languages. And then, and then the colors, just vibrant blues and mm. yellows and oranges and just this like really kind of romantic version of something and painterly version of it. And then I found that footage of what that was. And it's a completely different picture. I mean, completely. And it's stripped of all feeling because it's so just physical what it is. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, this is just my own experience, but it's the one that I use as that kind of compare and contrast of like, if you have physical memory and tangible, like one that is just, it is written in stone, it is what it is, it is not remembered by a person versus an organic one that's fluid and often changing as that person gets older, comparing and contrasting them is very interesting on how we remember events and how that can get very traumatic very quick or oftentimes maybe even help heal certain situations too in memory. So I, I just find this mm -hmm. interesting as a thought experiment and also just as a philosophical wondering on existence and everything else, you know? Right, like, yeah. I was going to make a joke earlier uh, when you said we're all individuals and I was going to say, we're all individuals? <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's, that's funny. Thanks. Uh, th it's no longer relevant, but I just wanted to share that joke. Um, <laughs> there's there's an autobiography I read forever ago. It's called Big Man. It's uh, the autobiography of Clarence Clemens, uh, the saxophone player for Bruce Springsteen. Um, oh, right. Also, also the uh, guy in the future that uh, does air guitar uh, when Bill and Ted go and see uh, the uh, future that is like uh i i guess it's supposed to be a utopia right oh and, yeah 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 and uh because because the wild stallions inspired so many people yeah exactly yeah that, that the guy on the throne is clarence clemens oh that's amazing yeah <laughs> um also in the i guess if you don't know him from that I'm, I'm trying to think of nostalgic things you would know him for he is the saxophone dude in the music video for Edge of Glory by Lady Gaga. Oh, interesting. There you yes. go. Okay. Yeah, so I, I cast about three different uh, yeah. things there to try, and, someone. to try and get someone's nostalgia for Clarence Clemens. For sure. Um, so anyways, his autobiography has white pages and gray pages. 
Oh, fascinating. The white pages are like this is how this is how uh, the it was, and then the gray pages are kind of these wild tales that they're not necess- it's not necessarily that they happened or that they happened that way, but that's the way the story is told. That's fascinating. You know, I love that. That's it's either it's either that they can't agree how it happened, or it was just sort of part of the legend of who Clarence Clemens was as a musician and a and a public figure. Just that you can't just write. He can't just write his autobiography without including the the legendary aspects of himself. You know, sure, it's the literal gray area. Yeah, and it's you know it's a it's kind of a fun gimmick to oh yeah to, a, to you know what otherwise could have just been just another rock star uh, autobiography. Yeah, it's interesting. Which, now I kind of which read it. I, of which I have read many. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's good. It's good readings. We'll, we'll, ju- we'll just have a we'll just have a whole book exchange one day here on, at UCM. Honestly, yeah, yeah. This uh. There's there's definitely a lot. I feel like yeah. we're both giving each other things that we're just going to have to think about later. Uh, yeah, I think it's gone. It's gotten <laughs> to this point of like I'm definitely. I even like wrote. You know, I've been. If you haven't seen me with my my little sketchbook, just writing stuff down for questions that I need to come up with for other things. I, this is this is a lot. It's a mm. lot. Like you know, this mm-hmm. is not a. This is definitely not the most digestible. I think information or questions because there's nothing really here. I feel like that's like proof of anything necessarily but it's a lot to think about and i feel like oh people people do not come to us for proof of anything no i mean why would you (laughs) (laughs) maybe our specific our specific niches that we might be able to defend but otherwise it's all just you know questions that's what Uh but i think i think you always say you know we come at things with doubt and value doubt a lot and i feel like Mm -hmm. that is something we ought to do more not maybe just Mm -hmm. us but in general because certainty is scary it it it's i will say certainty certainty is very comforting if you are the person who is certain yeah and oh wait (laughs) i should be certainty is scary to uncertain people i i mean yeah i should also be clear that this only applies to things maybe no actually that might be a that's gonna see now i hit myself in a in a bit of a hole because like you should be certain on certain, you know, on things. That, you should be certain on certain things. You should be certain on things that play out. Like we don't want to necessarily play the uncertainty card when it comes to, you know, maybe dinosaurs existing with people, like some creationist ideas, or you know, how uh, certain viruses function and whether or not they exist. So I feel like, mm. I, but also that's a, that's a level of certainty, right? Like even in conspiracy theories, you can find a level of certainty yeah. from people, but regardless without necessarily getting into a tangent because we can save that for another time um i think this has been really interesting as a conversation i feel like i have Mm -hmm. a lot to think about and a big reading list i now need to figure out uh to (laughs) to add to my own research and my own interest in the topic and i yeah i mean i i thanks thank you for your insight too zan on this question that's been bothering me for probably a year or two now i'm a lot more curious on going back in the back to the past just like in mm. uh you know marty mcfly does in the in the big journey talk about nostalgia trips the uh big journey yeah the that journey, was the the, the <laughs> land before time back yeah. to the future right. journey to big water journey to big water a land before time story uh yes. that's going to be the documentary slash uh yeah. epic i mean if you think about day. it if you think about it we live in the apocalypse after the land before time 
Ooh, that's one of those things that you got to tell someone when they're like really high to just leave them questioning everything. But yeah, I th- no, that's... I, I, I enjoy Ugh. being the one sober person around a yeah. bunch of stoners. You know? I, I have not. I have. I've been in neither of those situations, but I know what you mean. I just because, like, I don't mix well with any of that. But yeah, same. you know, I mean, you know, man, we, we all we all live in the aftermath of someone else's apocalypse. God, that's gonna leave me. I'm, oh my god, that's that's fun to think about, and also kind of terrifying <laughs> in a weird way, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, well um, that's... but before before be- before before the next but not last probably not last apocalypse. Um what have you got going on, Joe? Well, uh there's a couple things in the works and happening. I just finished up my uh residency with SVA in New York City, uh and there is an exhibition that should be coming out in the beginning of September um by TSA, Tiger Strikes Asteroid, a nonprofit uh gallery organization that has places all over the u.s um so i'll probably be plugging that when it comes out they also confiscated my pocket knife once oh nice (laughs) yeah i know i you know we met with locations all over the united states yeah yeah i know about the tsa oh yeah we we met with the it's funny i should have brought that up when we met with the director or i think previous director i don't know i don't know if he still runs or not but it was um that's funny I didn't think of that at the time, and I was wondering why that acronym was bothering me. Um, so yeah, but so I got that coming up. There should be another exhibition happening around the same time with actually uh, myself and some of the other other residents who are putting together a collective exhibition. Mm-hmm. So I will be plugging that soon mm-hmm. with a name and also the platform that'll be provided on. I don't want to give too much away because I don't have that information available. Uh, but that's you know on my end what's really been going People on. People and... just have to keep visiting the UCM to find out. Yeah, exactly. And I'm <laughs> I'm hoping with some more. Yeah, that that's really where you should get all your information on me is just by being coming to the museum and asking our receptionist uh, how I'm doing. I feel like that's mm-hmm, always mm-hmm. a good move. But uh, Zan, mm-hmm, what do you mm-hmm. got going on? Um, let's see. Uh. This is a little last minute, but I'm still excited to be a part of it. I have four pieces in the Then and Now show happening at Bula Barua Gallery in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Ooh, uh, nice. Near the uh, SPC Downtown Center. That is going to be going on uh, for a while. I'm going to have work up there from August 13th until, uh, I think, all the way into uh, December, December 10th. Oh, nice. So, yeah, if you want to see uh, some of my work from undergrad versus some of my uh, work from graduate school, that is a place where that will be uh, visible. Nice. In September, I'll also be part of a big group show uh, called Critters at the Mize Gallery, M-I-Z-E, in St. Petersburg as well. Uh, I need to find out the exact date on that, but uh, keep an eye out in September for the critters show. Ooh, awesome. I uh I don't maybe I should keep it a secret which which animal I got. Uh cuz I'm really excited for this painting that was done specifically for this show. Ooh. Yeah, why yes. not? Suspense is fun. Yeah, yeah. And uh we'll also be having some more announcements as well if you want to follow the museum after hours. We are at uncanny museum on Twitter and at uncanny county museum on Instagram. 
we've got some really exciting guests that are going to yes. be with us um assuming we don't run into uh any more uh, technical issues here at the museum right right but we are so excited to uh bring you uh these next couple of mm -hmm. uh special exhibit interviews Yes, and thank you all again so much for coming in and you know, listening to us speak about whatever's on topic. Um, but super excited to have our guests. And what's and what's not on topic? And what's and what's not on topic? You know, sometimes we have to talk about the the heavy existential dread of nostalgia, and then we got to also, you know, pacify that with some Greta Van Fleet slander at times. You know how it goes. <laughs> somehow we didn't talk about cars too and all of this i feel like we, we talked have about it just about everything else that's true we have it in a while so that's also yeah. kind of a question maybe mm. Mm. where's the nostalgia in cars too there's an essay I there mean, somewhere i'm sure yeah well <laughs> <laughs> um i i guess we've got a lot of essays and books to write uh, for sure conversation um, if you want to find me, I am at Xanosaurus on Instagram. And I'm Joe Samino Art on Instagram. And from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Samino. Bye. Bye. Bye.